0: Now the New American Standard says forever. The King James says to the uttermost. Does anybody have a different translation? <laughs> but... Completely, okay? And one of the commentaries I looked up the Greek word in says absolutely. So it's, uh, he, he's able to save forever, to the uttermost, completely, absolutely, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And again, continuing the contrast with the Old Testament priesthood, they don't always live. They live and have their ministry for a while. They die. And there's a succession of priests. But Jesus is a priest forever. He is never replaced. He's always praying for us, making intercession for us. And He thereby ensures that we obtain this promised salvation if we are those who draw near to God through Him. I also would like to emphasize the phrase, draw near to God. I've been talking about that a lot lately in some of the articles I've been writing and some of the theological debates about various practices. And I think that this promise that the only way we truly draw near to God is through the person of Jesus Christ and that He is in the very throne room of God at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having made purification for sins, which that you can't get closer to God by some religious practice than you would be coming to Him through the personal work of Jesus by faith, coming on His terms. You can't get any closer. So, if you know that, it'll save you a lot of money. Well, no, you don't have to go buy crystals or make a pilgrimage to some holy site or you know, uh the salvation is free. All these other things usually have a hook to them that involve spending a lot of money. Should we go which way which way should we go? We'll go around this way. I got a lot of cross references, Lois. Are you ready? Always. Isaiah forty five twenty two. Uh Cindy, Isaiah fifty three twelve. No Bible. Tyler. John ten twenty nine and thirty, and Steve, John fourteen and verse six. Probably know that one by heart, but you can look it up. Very famous verse. And then um, Norm Romans eight thirty four, and Lonnie Ephesians two eighteen, uh, Brian one Timothy two five, Noel Hebrews nine twenty four, Pat Jude one and verse twenty four.
1: Yes? Didn't even Jesus tell a parable about being close in heaven? you want to take the front uh, the table or the front seat, and Jesus might have to
0: come and put you back, so be careful. <laughs> yeah, he has a, there's, a par, there's a story about people picking out the place of honor. honor. And he says, um, don't, go, don't put yourself in the highest place, because... Uh, the host may come and say, no, that was reserved for somebody else, and then you'll be shamed when you're put down to the foot of the table. So he says, take the lowest place. I think this is in, where is this one? It's in Matthew? Um or no, it's in Luke. Take the lowest place, then the, the worst thing that ha- can happen is you get promoted. <laughs> I mean, the worst thing that can happen is you stay there, <laughs> but you might get promoted. <laughs> yeah, at least you, you, yeah, you don't, you don't want to do that. And then he also said the first will be last and the last will be first. And as far as how things shall be in the kingdom of God, it's going to be total reversal of what anybody might expect. Amen. Because the greatest uh of the are people unknown, unseen, yeah. and not in the public eye. Yeah. Who yeah, so so that's a good lesson to learn. Okay, Isaiah forty five twenty two. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. So interestingly, as we've pointed out many times, the Old Testament has a message that's for everybody. In other words, Messianic salvation always was designed for the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So the Old Testament says, Look to me all the ends of the earth. Come come to God on His terms. Isaiah 53.12 Wow, Isaiah 53 is amazing prophecy. Absolutely amazing prophecy about the personal work of Christ. And He was numbered with the transgressors, but He interceded for them. Wow. How is Old Testament prophecy fulfilled? Yeah, and is it literally or figuratively? Literally. Literally. That's what I'm going to do Friday night. I'm working on getting ready for this debate. And I'm going to, I'm only going to have a few minutes for the opening statement, so I'm going, to, I'm going to make two points in the opening statement. Number one, what do we know about prophecy that's already been fulfilled? And what we know about it is it gets fulfilled far more literally than you would have imagined. For example, in Psalm 22 it says they, they cast lots for his clothing. Well, who would have expected that something that literal would happen? And given the fact that what's already happened all the way up to 1948 has been literal fulfillment of prophecy, then on what grounds are we suddenly to think that all future prophecy is not literal but figurative and is not really going to happen? That will be one of my arguments. And the other argument will be the fact that God has made um, promises to national ethnic Israel And in that context, it says the promises of of God are irrevocable in Romans 11. So those will be the two legs of the argument. And then I'll see what the other fellow says as far as his amillennialism. Prophecy like uh, Cindy just read there is amazingly literal and explicit about the personal work of Christ. And so I would assume that those prophecies that have to do with his second advent would be fulfilled in the same way as the ones about his first advent. Why would it suddenly all the biblical rules, how things are in the Bible? Why would it change without any notice? So, hopefully, that'll we'll see what comes up at the debate. John ten twenty nine and thirty. My who has
1: given them to me is greater
0: than all. No one the the them. them being his sheep. And nobody shall snatch any sheep out of Jesus' hand because He's the good shepherd. That and that was John 10, 29 and 30. And and it's a cross-reference for Hebrews 7.25 where it says that He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God because He always lives to make intercession for them. So there's that verse that Tyler read. One of the means that God uses to make sure that we stay safely in his hand is his high priestly intercessory uh ministry towards us. All right. Okay, John fourteen and verse six.
1: Jesus said to him, I am the way and
0: the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. Amen. Don't you think that's kind of exclusive for this day and age?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's, a,
0: that's awful exclusive, yes.
1: On the but sheep, and he leaves the ninety-nine for the one, a little back where I has a problem. And if you know anything about shepherds, he will break that little sheep's leg and he will stay by the shepherd's side. Sheep are so helpless that they're on their back. You want to talk about how helpless we are, they can't even get up. They're the most helpless little, but yet the good shepherd, so he will keep us. But these wolves and sheep's scolding are not sheep.
0: They're not yeah, and they're not looking after the welfare of the flock.
1: <laughs> Stumble but they can repent, but right.
0: they're still sheep. Yeah, uh that's a good point. In fact, Paul prophesies in, um, in the Acts twenty that after my departure grievous wolves will come up from your own midst. Your own midst. The, the, and uh, uh, as you said, you know, the, Peter has the analogy of the pig that goes back in the slob. And because they don't really have a new nature okay i give I use the illustration because I was a farm boy growing up, and we used to go uh to the county fair with our pigs. I don't know if i, I can't remember where, who I told the story to, but see, they had this thing that to trick us farm boys into thinking that farming was profitable uh, so the way they do that is dad would give give me a little pig and then I'd take Dad's feed and feed the pig and the pig would grow up and we'd go to the county fair and show the pig and you'd get a, you know, a ribbon and then the local hog buyer would back his truck up there and they'd auction off the pigs and they'd go for higher than market rate and the pig would go off to the slaughterhouse and you'd get a check. Well, it was all profit. It wasn't my pig, and I—I I didn't. He yeah, made us think, "Boy, I want to be a farmer." Yeah, yeah. All the kids think, "Gee, I want to be a farmer when I grow up. This makes a lot of money." But, but one of the things that— one of the things that uh, was interesting about that was I never got anything like a white ribbon. My pig was always something wrong with it, but wasn't fat enough, or you know, I had mine on a lean diet, I guess. But. Uh, The people that took it very seriously, they'd take Johnson's baby oil and rub the whole pig down with his Johnson's baby oil so it'd kind of be shiny and smell real nice, you know? And, uh, but, but as soon as they got done showing a pig, it'd run right back to the slop hole with baby oil, (laughs) baby oil at all. So you know, you, you can't change the nature. And that, and that's, uh, okay, and that's what, what Dan was pointing out. And only God can change the nature of a sinner. To, to give us desires for other than just our old simple nature. So, uh, that's a good point. So, we can only come to the Father, but through the Son, those who come, He keeps them, protects them, intercedes for them, and does whatever is necessary to bring us ultimately to glory. Amen. Even if it's severe discipline. Amen. Okay, uh, Romans 8.34, Norm. So there's another verse that says the same thing. He's at the right hand of God and He makes intercession for us. So who's going to condemn us? And the implied answer is no one. No one. Who's the judge of all the earth? Yeah, According to Abraham, God said to Abraham, Abraham said to God, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Uh, so the judge of, of all ultimately is God who commits judgment uh, to the Son. Uh, is ultimately the final say. And the idea in that passage that Norm read is that if we're acquitted by God, who is the ultimate judge, is there some lower court that's going to overturn it? I, I know over the years I've had people come and, come and say, uh, well, you know, uh, I know God forgave me, but I can't forgive myself. And I always have the same answer. I says, "What are you doing, appealing to a lower court? <laughs> you don't get the Supreme Court verdict and then go and take it back to the local, uh, um, you know, county judge. That'd be crazy. So, so God's already rendered a verdict, who are you to to decide judgment? Well, I never thought of it that way. Ephesians two eighteen, Lonnie. Okay, that it's about Jews and Gentiles, and it says that we both, both Jew and Gentile, has access to the Father through Jesus Christ. One Timothy two five.
1: For there is only one God and only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus.
0: Another one of those exclusive verses. Close-minded. Very close minded. <laughs> How are you going to preach something like that? Some people say well you can't preach that kind of thing now because we're in a postmodern stage of history where pluralism is accepted as the truth by most the entire culture. So how can you go out and preach there's only one way to God, only one mediator when people don't think that way. They believe that all religions lead lead to God. So you're saying we should preach the truth even if it's not popular? Yeah, I agree. I thought I thought we'd get that answer. You
1: know, Jesus said that it would be like the
0: days of Noah. Yep. Um, okay, Hebrews nine twenty-four. Appear in the presence of God on our on our behalf, and the claim in Hebrews is is that the Tabernacle in the Old Testament was made after was a copy of the real one in heaven. There's a pattern to it. Okay, Jude one in verse twenty four. He's able to keep us, that's a benediction that we use sometimes. He's able to keep us from falling and to present us blameless before God. So how's Jesus going to do that? Amen. Through his once, his once for all sacrifice. So he paid the penalty of sins for our sins. He keeps us, protects us. He, He intercedes for us and he's promised that I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there ye may be also. You better remember that one in case the Jehovah Witnesses come by. Do you know what they do to trick Christians? They'll say, show me one place in the Bible where it says that you're going to go to heaven. And people, hmm, so you look up heaven and your concordance and, well, I can't find it. Well, that's just because the word heaven isn't in in some of these passages. But that one in John, John 14, says, "The where I am, there you may be also. And the Bible claims that Jesus ascended into heaven. So that's the answer to the Jehovah Witnesses right there. Well, they're just hoping you don't. (laughs) Right. That's true. They probably, you know, what they'd probably say? Well, that was given to the to the eleven. It wasn't really even given to Judas because he wasn't there in John fourteen. He had already left in John thirteen. It was given to the eleven, and they're part of the one hundred forty-four thousand. What verse was that in uh, fourteen? Uh, what? John fourteen. Steve read six, but right? the one I'm referring to, I think, is. Let me find it here. John three, three. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. John 14.3 Right. Well, um, no, it's, I, that's been comforting to Christians for centuries and centuries and centuries. And I, um, is it going to say only the eleven will go to, come, no one comes to the Father but by me? That's not just for the eleven. So um, Usually you say it's just for the eleven when you're trying to evade something. Like the one in John fifteen sixteen. People say, well, it's only for the eleven because they want to evade its meaning. Okay, let's go to verse 26. We've got so many good verses here Oh, in so little time. Hebrews 7.26, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. (laughs) What a magnificent uh, uh, statement here. People that are very, very well trained in Greek, so much so that they can compare good Greek with not as flowery or wonderful Greek, say that Hebrews is some, has the best, most lofty, articulate Greek in the New Testament, which makes people wonder who wrote it. <laughs> some people think Apollos because he was so articulate. Very difficult, yeah. yeah, the Hebrews is... Uh, the magnificent, uh, use of the Greek language. I'm not good enough at it to be able to tell good from bad. But when you talk, when you talk to the scholars who know Greek, uh, very, very well, they say Hebrews is just magnificent in its, uh, use of just the sounds of words and the dramatic way words are used and how they do build on themselves, on each other and, uh, using grammatical techniques that are very sophisticated. But this particular verse is certainly an example of that. Just look at the description of our of our Lord. A holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Think about that. Uh, there, here is a contrast, as is the case in this whole theme here, with the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood was made up of sinners. Jesus was separated from sinners. The Levitical priesthood had to be cleansed. Undefiled is a term that had to do with defiled, meant un- unacceptable or unclean and unable to go into God's presence. The priest in the Old Testament had to go through a series of rituals in order to be declared considered ceremonially clean, so that they were able to go do their priestly ministries. Otherwise, they could not if they were defiled. Here, it's stating that Jesus is undefiled. The the idea is that by nature, for all eternity, He's undefiled and always fit to be in God's presence because He existed from all eternity as God and with God. And He's a priest forever after the holy order of Melchizedek. So, holy... Innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, <laughs> the great priesthood in the Old Testament that was established by God with with the Aaron and the Levites and how the high priest had this beautiful garb and was able to go into the holy place once a year. This is uh, inferior to Jesus' priesthood because he doesn't go into a tabernacle pitched by man, but he goes into a heavenly tabernacle pitched by God. (laughs) So the superiorities are many. And what a fabulous passage this is. And we have some cross references. Uh, Sam, Psalm sixty eight eighteen, Gene, Luke twenty-four, Forty-six and forty-seven, Mary, John eight twenty-nine, Dan, two Corinthians five twenty-one, Dean, Ephesians one twenty to twenty-two, and Karen, Philippians two nine through eleven, Stephen, one Peter two twenty-two, and Scott, one John three five. Okay, all the way back over here. <laughs> Psalm eighteen no sixty
1: eight eighteen. Thou hast on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts for men, yea, were the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them.
0: Yeah, and that verse is cited by Paul in Ephesians about Jesus' uh descent and ascent into heaven. And the and giving of gifts, I think, in the, is a reference ultimately to messianic salvation in the various gifts that God gives to the church. So, but it, there it's talking about this ex- exaltation above the heavens. Luke 24, 46, 47, I think it's the Great Commission. Luke 24? Yeah, 46, 47.
1: that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem.
0: Amen. That's the Luke version of the Great Commission and I think it needs to be kept in mind that the Gospel includes the resurrection Amen. and the preaching of the Gospel includes repentance. Amen. This is the very pattern that was evident In Peter's message on the day of Pentecost, that Peter began by preaching the resurrection. He indicted his audience of their sin, of having rejected Messiah. And when they were convicted by the Holy Spirit and asked him what to do, he said, Repent. Amen. Yes. And
1: that's the repentance of unbelief. They didn't believe who he said he was, and who he claimed he was. Imagine them on the face of the earth, for me to see we're sorry for him. repent of. But not the one of he that believeth not is condemned already. And he that believeth is condemned. They refuse to repent. The Jews, the Gentiles, this whole world repent of unbelief, who Christ is, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, all of them. They won't repent of the right thing. They're
0: sorry, okay. everything on the face of the earth, but unbelief. So what you're saying is giving up something for Lent won't save you? <laughs>
1: Okay. okay. Uh, yeah. i
0: yeah. back and forth a thousand times. You only have
1: to go once. Well, okay. I, you know how I describe
0: It won't work, will it? Won't work. Well, you know how I describe it when I preach the Gospels out on the street or whether in the church here is that the ultimate sin of the human race is trusting man.
1: That's
0: right. Which is unbelief. That's, what unbelief. That's unbelief, trusting man. Um in fact it's interesting, everybody has faith. It's a question of who is in. You either have faith in man or faith in God. Yeah. So repent is to put your faith in God on his terms. Okay, so uh Dan no, um Mary, I gave you a verse I got Dan, you got me off track here. <laughs> Which one do you have? Okay, John eight
1: twenty nine. <laughs>
0: You have a sense there that Jesus always does what pleases the Father. Nobody else can say that. He's the only one who can say he always does what pleases the Father. And then uh Dan Ephesians one no two Corinthians five twenty-one.
1: For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him.
0: What a marvelous uh what a marvelous transformation and what a marvelous act that God has done in Christ that He bore sin who knew no sin in order that we might have righteousness who really knew no righteousness. Amen. Ephesians 1, 20-22 The very important part of this issue of Jesus being ascended into the heavenly sanctuary and making intercession, having taken away our sins. In Colossians and in Ephesians, there's a lot of talk about these principalities and powers. And the reason that comes up is that in Asia Minor, where these churches were, people were very afraid of these hostile Powers, And they had a lot of magical practices in order to stave off bad fate and curses that they believed were making their life miserable. And so some of the early Christians were tempted to t- bring those practices into the church because they were still afraid of these hostile powers. And so they had the gospel plus what you read in Colossians. Oh yeah, and it's, it's really human nature to, to believe if you if you study the history of world religions and and the more you know about humans, just the way humans have always been, paganism is sort of the default position Amen. Um, without some sort of a mitigating influence. People fall into pagan belief systems now, as a matter of fact, these principalities and powers do exist. Amen. But, um, what's wrong with some of these ideas, especially what Colossians 2 warns about, is this idea that you have to have some expert to, you know, break the curse or some religious practice to scare away the demons. What Ephesians, that Dean just read, is saying. What, what was being reassuring to this church is that if you are in Christ and He's the head over the church, That He, being in Him, He is above all the principalities and powers. Therefore, you are protected from them. Why? Because of being in Christ. And it just made me think of something because I'm not only prepared for this debate on Friday night, but I'm prepared for the conference on November 6th when we're going to talk about mysticism. And uh, these practices that we're going to talk about, these mystical practices are suggesting that you'd take a journey inward to find Christ. And but the interesting thing about the writers who are teaching this kind of thing is that they also tell people that they often run into demons. So they go on their journey inward to meet Christ, and they end up meeting demons sometimes. In fact, they I think they do all the time, because there's probably a demon imitating Christ. Uh, and then they have to deal with this, and so they have this layers of techniques to try to deal with the demons that they stir up in their journey inward. And it's so opposite of what the Bible suggests, which if you are going upward rather than inward, and you're trusting Christ, who's exalted above all principalities and powers and seated at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us, that's how you know you have freedom Amen. from these Hostile powers, uh, but when you go into their domain by some altered state of consciousness, uh, that's not getting you closer to God; it's getting you further from God. And I'm very concerned about that. Yes, sir. Is it not
1: true that Christ lives
0: in us? Right, Christ in us, the hope of glory. But the way He lives in us is through the Holy Spirit. Let me show this show you in, in, in uh, Romans 8. It is true that we're indwelt by Christ. But the Bible never tells us to go inward to find Him. Paul says, I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Uh, But in Romans 8, there's something that's interesting that shows us what that terminology means. In Romans chapter 8, it says this. um, Verse 9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him, and if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, so if you notice the terminology, what Paul meant by Christ being in you is that you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Christ. But the Bible asserts something like 20 over 20 times that Christ has bodily ascended into heaven and he seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay? So the way Christ is in us is through His Holy Spirit. Yes? Also, if you
1: need to amplify that our body is dead because of sin. In Romans
0: chapter 7, discusses that whole thing. So yeah. the Spirit versus the body. Well, the... Uh, the idea is that the body is mortal and the fact that it's still prone to death is a, is a residue of the fact of the, of the judgment of God against sin. But we have hope in the resurrection from the dead in which we get a body that will be immortal. And that will be suitable to be forever in God's presence. So, um but that's a good question. That's a good point. Uh, I gotta, I remember I gotta address that uh, on uh, November 6th when we talk about this. I uh, look at with me at Colossians 3 and verse 1, then we'll get back to our cross-references. What made me think about this is studying Hebrews. Over and over again, it talks about Jesus being ascended uh, into heaven. And it mentions it so many different times and that we are coming to a better sanctuary that is a heavenly one, a better high priest, a heavenly one, a better uh, payment for sins, one that's been poured out in once for all uh, before God. And Uh, in contrast to all these books that I read were suggesting you do a journey inward, which is very popular in this postmodern age, it's interesting the Bible always tells us to look upward. For instance, the Lord's Prayer says, Our Father who art in heaven. Look at Colossians 3 and verse 1. uh, And then I'll read a ways here. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And so the Christian conception of prayer is that we are praying to God in heaven, our Father Art in heaven, through the person and work of Jesus Christ that gives us access to Him. The Eastern conception of prayer is this meditative technique where you go into silence in order to achieve peace of mind or whatever. Yes, Kathy? Um, how do
1: you occult
0: when you do that? Well you teach them Colossians two. <laughs> I, I, it's a pretty complicated but Colossians two it deals with that very issue, Kathy. And if you, if, you, if you need some resources on that, we did a radio show on that. In fact, we did a series of three radio shows that I have on, I can make CDs out of. But I explained Colossians 2. Unfortunately, it's uh, the Greek in Colossians 2 is kind of difficult, and there are some ideas that you need to know the background of the Bible to understand them. But I tried to explain it very carefully in this radio show. Because, see, there, there were these people... In the ancient world, there's a temple of Apollo that had inscriptions, and it says so and so entered. And they use the same uh, terminology used in Colossians too. And they had this religious rite in Asia Minor near Colossae, where people would do ritual purification, fasting. They go in on the new moon. All these terms are found in Colossians too. Because, see, they were afraid these demons were going to get them. And so they had this process to, to defeat your demons. Have you heard that thing? Meeting your demons? We still use that phrase in English. And they would go to the... After all of the proper purification, and they were religiously set, and it was the right time, it was the new moon and all these things, they'd go into this temple and they'd and they they'd have a place in there where they take people down. And we don't know whether it was sort of like what we'd call a haunted house where the priests down there had made this experience for them. Or whether maybe the demons really were there. And they've had demons. But literally, they'd go down into the this temple to meet their demons. And there they'd be confronted with the goddess Helkate. And this goddess, if they did everything right, would bring them up and out and having entered, it says in Colossians, taking your stand on visions they'd seen. They'd see this vision having entered and come back through it. And their belief was that if you made it out, if you went in and met your demons and got out through the goddess Helcate, who had the keys of hell, and she let you out, that after that you were immune from the stoichia, which was the Greek word for these elemental spirits. And some of these people who had had this experience evidently became Christians but did not want to give up their exalted status. They're they're mingling the two. And they're saying, yeah, we believe in Christ, but we also believe you need this thing that we did in order to be free from the hostile powers. Well, Paul's claim was, no, you don't need that. You can't mingle these pagan practices with Christianity. That the reason you're free from the hostile powers is because of the cross of Jesus Christ, where He de- defeated them and nailed a certificate of debt to the, to the cross, and therefore these practices are wrong, and it says that they have no value against fleshly indulgence. It's just a show of religiosity. That's the short version. There's a radio show on that in an article I wrote. Yes. Right. Yes,
1: so-called
0: philosophy and intellectualism. So Yeah, yeah, it's uh that's exactly what the issue was. I spent a long time researching that. I read uh, there was a book that was the key to the Colossians 2 because uh, I read this book about syncretism and Colossae, and in the book it, it had all this archaeological finds that unlocked the, under, the what the meaning of those words were in Colossians two in the context. So. Uh, you got to be careful because people will tell you, I have the key to keep you free from the demons.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, whoever. Yeah, I wrote about that. Let's, you know what? I think I got sidetracked here.
1: <laughs> no. no. Uh,
0: good enough. I'll get sidetracked. we got to get back to these uh, cross-references. Okay, we did Ephesians. Who had Philippians? That was your card? Okay, Philippians... Two ninth or through
1: eleven. For this reason, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Above.
0: Amen. Amen. That's our exalted Lord. <laughs> He humbled Himself and was exalted. 1 Peter 2.22 no So that's about Jesus' sinlessness. Which is important. It's important to explain in the Gospel, when we preach the Gospel. Especially, well, I think anywhere, but particularly when we do it out on the streets. I always explain to people that Jesus was God incarnate, And sinless. Because you can't assume people know who Jesus is. Everybody's heard the name Jesus because they hear people cuss. But they don't necessarily know who he was. They know he's a religious figure. I'd say almost anybody would know that. That Jesus was a religious person, a good teacher, or somebody in history. But do you assume that people know that Jesus was sinless? It has to be preached. Do they know that He preexisted as God and with God? As John says, it has to be preached. Do they know that He was literally bodily raised from the dead? It has to be preached. If it isn't, people are not knowing enough to put their faith in Jesus because they don't know His person at work. Yes? I don't know how
1: many people I've talked to that believe Jesus is the Son of God, but they
0: don't have a clue that He is God. So. Right. Exactly. And especially given the popular belief of the universal brotherhood of all man, when you say Jesus is the Son of God, that doesn't necessarily say anything in their mind that's unique because we're all sons of God and brothers and sisters. That's just a common belief. So if we're going to explain the Christian gospel, we've got to give people enough information. It's not even fair to them to ask them to make a commitment to Christ whom they have no idea who He is. Amen. Alright? So I'm going to talk about that this afternoon a little bit. Uh, 1 John three five. Thank you, Scott. You are the most patient person here. That <laughs> your finger has been in that page for about twenty minutes. <laughs> yep.
1: But
0: you know he appeared, so take away our sin, and in him is no sin. There it says he appeared to take away our sins, in him is no sin. Again, clear teaching of the sinlessness of Christ. All right. Hebrews seven twenty seven says, Who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Once for all, once for all. There's a contrast again. The high priests in the Old Testament, they're sinners. How do they know they're sinners? Because they had to go make an offering for their sin. On the day of atonement, the first thing the priest had to do was make an offering for his own sin. Plus, they had daily offerings as well. So, they were conscious of the fact that they were sinners. And the blood that was being shed by these sacrificial animals was indelibly imprinting on the minds of the Jewish people the seriousness of sin and the need for a sacrifice. That they saw. That they knew. But here the claim is, and this phrase is very important. It's going to come up again in Hebrews. Once for all. Absolutely once for all. That will save you from a lot of religious works. If you know that Jesus paid for sins once for all, then nobody can sell you something or give you some process that's going to get you closer to God. Jesus did it once for all when He offered Himself. So, um, I think that's very important. Uh, Talking about verses 26 and 27, uh, William Lane says, Taken together these three adjectives, holy, innocent, undefiled, uh, described the sinlessness of the high priest in contrast to the Levitical high priest of whom there was demanded only ritual purity and bodily integrity. The high priest appropriate to the Christian community was qualified by spiritual and moral perfection. That's Jesus, and he's unique. Okay, uh, yes, I can Okay, so basically you mean uh, denying the deity of Christ? Yeah, Yeah. Um, the most famous people that do that would be the Jehovah Witnesses. And they uh, tried to misuse the Greek language in John 1.1 1, 1 in order to say Jesus was a God, uh, but not the God. And they would also refer to this passage in John where, where it's quoting the Old Testament, Psalm 89, where it says, Ye are God's. And they misuse that passage as well. Actually, the only way you can deal with that, first of all, just state the truth and be firm about it. No, Jesus existed from all eternity with God and has God. That's the true doctrine from John 1. 1. Now, they're going to say you're wrong about that. Uh, if you don't know Greek, just hold your position and state the truth and let God use it. Well, that's not a bad idea either. Uh, I have had them come over. You, you ever see? They have never come back. They came over about 1988. We were in the house we're living in now. There were two of them. One was the new newer one, and one was the uh, leader. They, they sent about that way, one of the experience and one. And they said, "Well, we want to talk to you about uh, the Bible." I said, "All right, I'd love to talk about the Bible." And they started in with what you were saying. And I said, Oh, well wait a second, and I just started quoting from John out of the Greek. I said, Well, you know, Jesus said, Unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. And that's in John eight twenty three. And John and what he said was, A go a me. I am continually existing. And that was a reference to the great I am in the Old Testament. And he made himself to be God and said, if you don't believe he's God, you're going to die in your sins. And I just got like all excited and started telling him all this stuff. And this, and the older one says, we got to go. And they took off. They don't want to talk anymore. And they never came back. It was in 1988. They put our address, 2610 Zenwoods, on the list. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on the list. They never came back. I thought I was kind i thought we were just getting started with a nice conversation about the deity of Christ.
1: The one about that, say, God, there's no in Greek." No definite article. It's called
0: definite article. A definite article would, yeah, yeah it's called uh, an arthros construction, means without a definite yeah, article. So there is no a. Well, yeah, but the Greek. Scholars have pointed out that it carries on the definite idea from the previous article in that phrase, and you can look that up in some technical writing.
1: There are a bunch of places even in the same chapter that they translated Lord was God with
0: yeah, meaning definite. They're just reading that into there. And there's another one that says Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ. There's this Granville Sharp rule in the Greek showing that, that that those verses also are talking about the deity of Christ. So there are answers to these things. They're a little bit technical. And what they're hoping is that they can confuse you. And you don't have to go be a Greek scholar. Camp, you did the right thing. Hold your ground on what you believe. Let them take a hike. But on the other hand, if you know some of these Greek things, then throw it at them. Right. Yeah, they're shoehorning their doctrine into the Bible. Right. Okay, um, what were we going to do here? We were talking about verse 27. Um, Once for all. That's what we were talking about. Once for all. Don't forget that phrase. It's absolutely essential to Christian doctrine that Christ sacrifices once for all. I wrote an article called The Gospel for Roman Catholics that it was intended to help people witness to their Catholic friends. And in that, I made a lot of references to the book of Hebrews and Jesus as the high priest and the was for all sacrifice. Some of the more astute Catholics called me and uh, said, well, why do you write this? We believe all this. And I said, well, if you believe it, I'm happy for you. But... Um, What's going on is that I have the latest Catholic catechism up in my office. Is that what they've done is basically kept all the old beliefs and then add some of these things in there and say, yeah, yeah, we believe that Christ died for sins once for all. But the problem is that's not preached to anybody in that church. Okay? And so the average person going to Mass week after week doesn't know that. Because you can find it buried in the catechism somewhere. And how many people don't even know that? Yeah, you <laughs> Well, that's, uh, so I did have, uh, as a result of that article, I had supper with a Roman Catholic family that were charismatics. And I ended up also getting some emails from another guy. That, there are some people in the church that know the truth of the gospel. Uh, and so I'm not saying that, I wasn't writing that article to suggest there wasn't anybody that knew what the truth was and. But the huge out of millions and millions and millions, the, the few that understand it are, are rare. Okay, and many don't ever hear about it. And, and you know what I said to the one that was going kind to of upset? I said, "No, oh, wait a second. If you believe that Christ died for sins once for all, then why are you upset about me saying so to other Catholics? You should be happy that I'm telling them that because I'm agreeing with you." Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Well, he, he, what he thought about was I was just trying to be disrespectful, which really wasn't the case at all. I was trying to show people his truth that Jesus died for sins once for all. Yes, Mary. Well, according
1: to the, the Catholic system from which I was delivered by the Lord, uh, the only source of truth comes to the priest. You're not even encouraged to read the Bible. But
0: it's not in the old days. Not in the old days, right. It might... The one guy that emails me says, well, no, that's not true anymore, and so on and so forth. But you know, I think that there's a huge disconnect because most people still understand it as it always was. And, uh, but they would say today, well, you can, you should read your Bible. Yes. Well, I think the, posi- the official position is that the Scriptures and the truth- truths of therein plus the uh, infallible traditions that have been handed down are properly interpreted by the teaching magisterium. Okay? Is that correct? The Pope is the only one that's infallible
1: and in, all the priests are supposed
0: to Inter- yeah. go yeah. with whatever he said. Exactly. So the Pope can speak infallibly, but what he says, which gets into the tradition, is filtered down through the teaching magisterium. And so the priest is supposed to be telling you what the Pope believes and says, and not something else. But um, I remember uh, in the 70s, Don Carlson, some of you might remember. I don't know, maybe he'll be here at the reunion. He was living across from a Catholic church over there, that Highland house that we used to have. And he 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 kind of got... Made friends with the Catholic priest. The Catholic priest had an occult bookstore in his church. And he was into occultism. And, uh, Ouija boards and, no, I mean, that's not the official, I mean, that certainly can't blame the Pope for that. I'm sure he didn't sanction it, but I mean, they do what, you know, here and there, they do what they do, you know. And so this, uh, my friend Don used to go over a witness to this Catholic priest who was a little out there. <laughs> Okay, um, thank you for the invigorating discussion. As you know, today we're celebrating our 25th anniversary of uh, being uh, a church. And our former senior pastor, Larry Ehrlich, will be speaking. And he's been uh, uh, working with uh, Jewish ministry since uh, 1995 when he left. And so we'll be uh, blessed to have him back with us for the, for the day. And then we're going to have a lot of fun. we got our food. And then this afternoon... Uh, our outreach man is going to play a couple songs and I'm going to talk about our what we do, what's, what we think is important and where we're going. So God bless you.